This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, migraine in children, a problem that's commoner than you might think. What works and what doesn't? How to get rid of a major glass ceiling in medicine to the benefit of us all. And the diet du jour, the keto diet, short for ketogenic. It's touted for lots of things, from getting rid of fat and making you look ripped, to commoner garden weight loss, to treating type 2 diabetes. Now, I've got an interest declaration. I have been known, just on occasion you understand, to go keto myself. It takes work, and you've got to go through a few days of feeling, well, there's no other word for it, crap, before the energy boost kicks in. And yes, you do lose weight, but at the expense of friends who run a mile from your breath. And you do seem to have to break the ketosis before going to the gym, because you can't really function well aerobically or on weights without some carbs. So when it comes to being ripped, that's a pipe dream, as my six-pack still struggles to break out and reveal itself. Anyway, enough of the anecdotes, and you've not tuned in to hear my health gripes. What's the evidence on the ketogenic diet? It's a debate that can almost bring people to blows. But some brave researchers at New York University School of Medicine have had a serious look. One of them is Shivam Joshi. Low-carb diets have been around for a long time, several decades, and they've gone through many iterations. And the latest version is the ketogenic diet, which emphasizes the least amount of carbohydrates. How low does it go on the prescribed diet? So the amount of carbohydrates can go as low as 5 to 10% of calories consumed. So, so it's pretty low. So essentially it's the milk in your coffee each morning, that sort of thing. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. I guess I start getting into trouble when I say exclusion of fruits and vegetables are all carbs because uh, the, the keto enthusiasts come after me with pitchforks and they say, well, we're allowed to have so many grams of carbs per day as long as they don't exit ketosis, which is their which is the biggest concern. Well, so it's true, they can have a few carbs, but not too many because then they're out of ketosis. And we should just explain what ketosis is because this is shifting from carbohydrate metabolism for energy to fat metabolism. Right, so when you stop using carbohydrates for energy, you start using fats and the fats can come from fats consumed, but also fats stored in the body. The utilization of those fats produces energy and as a byproduct, you get ketones, which also can produce energy. But these ketone bodies are pathognomonic. Well, they exist in a variety of other times in human processes. But the ketone body is very critical for this diet. So that's why they call it the ketogenic diet. And some people test their urine for them, but you can smell it on your breath as well. Right, exactly. And you can even test it in your breath. There's a, a variety of ways people can test for it if one desires to be in ketosis. Well, let's take three different areas. One is weight loss. One is type 2 diabetes. The other is whether it protects your heart or not, because they do tend to be high in fat because you've got to get your calories from somewhere. So let's look at weight loss, because intuitively it seems to make sense that particularly if you don't have too high a fat ketogenic diet and it's more protein, that you're going to start burning the fat around your abdomen. This, this seems to make intuitive sense. Right, yeah, and that's one of the arguments of their diet. But when you look at low-carb diets in general, the sentinel feature of their ability to cause weight loss is that they restrict calories, and that's been shown time and time again with many different types of diets, and that's actually an important underpinning of any diet. And I think anyone who is in the diet arena knows this. You can eat uh, a diet full of 
cookies and cakes and other unhealthy foods. But as long as you restrict the number of calories, you'll certainly lose weight. And many diets are successful in causing weight loss because they create rules or are able to get their followers to adhere to these rules or adhere to their to their diets uh, religiously. Apart from that, the evidence suggesting that metabolism is increased, the ketogenic diet or the diet is unique in causing more weight loss than other diets, especially like body fat loss, it doesn't seem to bear out. There's small benefits and pitfalls with the diet here and there, but overall it doesn't seem to be any more different than any other diet. And is the science set on this? I mean, there have been good randomized trials to compare the different diets? Is the science set? So do we have an abundance of long-term, high-quality randomized controlled trials? No. So the science is not set, and this is probably why this debate will will rage on for months and if not years to come. But we do have a decent amount of data to suggest that this diet may not be any better than other types of diets. So for example, we do have my co-authors and I wrote this paper in JAMA Internal Medicine, and we cited this meta-analysis from 2013 by Bueno et al. This was a meta-analysis or a summary study of, I believe, 13 randomized controlled trials. And in these are randomized controlled trials, there were a year or more, and this study showed that the difference in weight loss between those on a ketogenic diet and those not on a ketogenic diet or a controlled diet was only 0.9 kilograms, which is of statistical significance, but may not be of clinical significance. So what about type 2 diabetes? So again, diabetes is a problem where, well, particularly type 2 diabetes, but where you're not metabolizing carbohydrates properly because of resistance to insulin. And therefore, again, intuitively, it seems to make sense if you reduce your carbs and switch to fat metabolism, you're helping the diabetes. What's the evidence there? Yeah, so we actually used the same study. And when you go back to that study, they looked at diabetics as well, and they saw no difference in glucose control or glycemic control. Short-term studies seem to show a benefit, and especially short-term studies that are not randomized. And in some of the studies, they have unfair comparisons. So that in some of the studies in the literature, if you're looking at them, they'll randomize two groups. They'll have one group that is on the ketogenic diet and another group that's not on a ketogenic diet, and they'll compare which group does best. But buried into the experimental design, you'll have, with the ketogenic diet, behavioral interventions. They'll have telemedicine support. They'll have behavioral therapy. They'll have visits with a nutrition counselor or exercise or something else that can also help adherence to the prescribed diet and also help people just live healthier lives. And it may be more reflective of just people adhering to a diet than the ketogenic diet in particular. But at any rate, the short-term studies, and especially those that are not randomized, tend to show a benefit. But what happens over time as these studies get longer, when they get to six months, the, the difference in benefit for diabetes tends to narrow. By the time you get to 12 months, it's close to zero. And then when you're past 12 months, it is zero. For diabetes, the, the difference tends to tends to disappear, or any potential benefit tends to disappear by a year's time or, or past a year's time. And if there's anything we know, diabetes is not transient. People tend to have diabetes for long periods of time. So having benefit that is sustainable is important. Now, what about heart risk factors? I mean, Atkins used to say, well, you know, the, it's, it's intuitively... It's counterintuitive, but my Atkins diet is really good for your heart because of, again, shifting to fat metabolism. 
What do we know about heart risk factors and heart health on the ketogenic diet? We don't have heart outcomes, so we're using surrogate outcomes, meaning that we're looking at markers in cholesterol. And some markers do improve and some markers do get worse. Which one matters more is of contentious debate. So LDL has been shown to worsen. And this in is fact, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is supposed to be the bad form of cholesterol that gets deposited in your arteries. Right, exactly. And that's the one that physicians have historically, and even to this day, been very concerned about it and the ones that we, the marker that we use. But with this movement, which tends to have overlap with resisting the, the status quo and which also has overlap with things that are happening in politics, weirdly enough, it is contending that maybe LDL doesn't matter as much anymore and it, there may be other issues that matter. And I think that may be wishful thinking because the, the ketogenic diet in some studies has been shown to raise HDL, um, but increasing HDL doesn't necessarily always correlate with a reduction in heart endpoints like heart attacks, deaths, and strokes, and things like that. What's a better predictor of things is LDL, and even better than that is apolipoprotein B. And when you start looking at studies, especially ones that are weight neutral, if you lose weight through any, any means, you generally will improve your cholesterol and your cardiovascular risk factors for the most part. So it's not surprising that LDL does decrease with weight loss. So it's important to look at weight neutral studies. And in weight neutral studies, LDL increases, and, and sometimes so does apolipoprotein B. And that is actually very concerning. And sometimes the increase can be by 10, 20 or more points. So apart from that, are there any other serious adverse effects from a ketogenic diet? Yeah, so the data is still emerging within the adult literature. But the ketogenic diet has been widely prescribed for the pediatric epilepsy population for almost 100 years now. Just to explain, these are children with uncontrolled epilepsy. The drugs aren't working that well. And for some reason, going on a ketogenic diet does seem to help to control their epilepsy. Right, exactly. And this patient population is different. It's children. They have underlying conditions predispose them towards epilepsy or refractory seizures. But it, it is insightful because the, there are side effects noted in this literature. Some of them, which are starting to be borne out in the adult literature, is an increase in LDL napolipoprotein B, which are both surrogate markers for cardiovascular disease. But there's also others that have been seen, like vitamin mineral deficiencies, constipation, because there's not a lot of fiber that's consumed with traditional animal-based ketogenic diets, fatigue, kidney stones are another big risk factor. Myself being a physician trained in nephrology or, or a study of kidney disease is of interest to me. There's a number of risk factors or side effects that have been noted in the pediatric epilepsy literature that we're waiting to see uh, if they also are present in the adult population as well. Now, one of the arguments put by people who promote the ketogenic diet is, look, it can't be that bad. If you look at the Inuit in Canada, you know, they are eating blubber and you know, fish and almost eat no carbohydrate at all. Therefore, how bad can it be? Yeah, so the Inuit are an interesting population. They actually have a mutation to not be in ketosis, which is kind of interesting because it makes you wonder why they would have a mutation like this. And in, in some Oh, I see. So they eat a low-carb diet, but it's not ketogenic. Right. So it doesn't put them in ketosis or as much ketosis as other populations. And some have theorized online in the deep spaces of the web, there may be an evolutionary adaptation that may be having so much ketosis, which generally is accompanied by mild form of acidosis, 
may put people at risk if they do develop, say, an infection or septic shock or go into starvation. Oh, so there's or other been a selection and, process. Perhaps, or something else that we just don't know. But it is certainly intriguing and interesting. The other thing is that the Inuit aren't so healthy. There's been several studies showing that they have perhaps higher rates of cardiovascular disease than people in Western populations, which is actually interesting. It is, it is perhaps hard to believe that someone could have a higher risk of developing heart disease than someone already living in a Western population. But people have written about it. So that is of concern, too. The other thing with this diet that goes hand in hand is that people demonize so-called good carbs or your unrefined carbs. With this movement, and I think this this was really the purpose of our paper, is that one, we were stating that the enthusiasm for the diet exceeds its evidence, but also we were coming to the defense of the lowly apple or banana who, with the debut of the ketogenic diet, has since been demonized for containing carbs, but those carbs are surrounded by fiber and are packaged nicely in as a whole fruit, then also vegetables along with it, but have recently been demonized because they are technically carbs, but not all carbs are the same. So when people throw out fruits and vegetables with, say, sugar, for example, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because of the evidence for uh, whole grains, etc., for uh, protective in terms of colon cancer and heart disease. Shiva, have you ever tried a ketogenic diet? I've never tried the ketogenic diet, but, you know, there's a lot of things I haven't tried. Let's not get into dangerous territory here. <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried smoking, for example, but I, I know I don't need to try smoking because I've read the papers on it. So that's, you know, one thing. But I'm not saying the ketogenic diet is as dangerous as smoking because my critics will come after me. But when I, I've, as I explained to others, I think of this as a, a drug being produced by a, a pharmaceutical company. If a pharmaceutical company came and said, Oh, we're producing a drug that has short-term benefit, but the benefit decreases after one year. It may have risks, and there's plenty of alternatives. I don't know how many people would sign up for it. Okay, well, I hope the pitchforks won't land on you from Australia. <laughs> I hear them from here. <laughs> <laughs> Shivam, thanks very much for joining us. No worries, anytime. Thank you so much. Shivam Joshi is a physician at New York University School of Medicine at Bellevue. And we'll have a link to that paper on our website. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. A common reason for parents to bring their child to the GP is headaches, and a high proportion are likely to have migraine. It's thought to affect 1 in 10 children before they become adults. The American Academy of Neurology and the American Headache Society have released guidelines for doctors treating children with migraine attacks and who also might be trying to prevent future episodes. Another confession, I've been a migraineur since childhood, so have a passing interest. Anyway, one of the fascinating conclusions of the US neurologists who searched the evidence to back up the guidelines is that many of the treatments that work in adults are no better than placebo in kids. So to find out how childhood migraine is diagnosed, treated and prevented in Australia, Professor Monique Ryan has kindly agreed to come in. Monique is Head of Paediatric Neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Monique. Thanks, Norman. Are you surprised by these placebo conclusions? Um, Not particularly. I think the studies that have recently been published have been illuminating primarily in that they've been indicative of how little we actually really know about the effectiveness of the migraine treatments that we very commonly use in children. So this is like asthma, where we assume that what works in adults works in children and they've been very rarely tested. 
But it's, or it's actually to some extent the same in adults. When you look at the number of studies that they looked at and reviewed, they actually um, had to exclude more than 99% of the studies because they were poorly done or just too small to be conclusive. For, um, for a condition that affects one in four women, adult women. Uh, well, and and one in you know one in four adolescents as well. I, I guess a lot of the time we operate on gestalt and experience. But what these studies did um, suggest to us was the need for better long-term prospective studies, which are really very much lacking in paediatrics. And there's been little enthusiasm for them for so, a number of different reasons in the past. But I think that is something that we need to look at in the future. So, how does migraine present in children? Well, it presents very much as it does in adults, in older children and adolescents. So throbbing, severe headache, often associated with nausea and vomiting, with pallor and a feeling of um, of, of just being very unwell. In adults, migraines And one-sided? Often, off, well, in adults, it's often one-sided, but in children, it's often bilateral. But younger children can also just have things like episodic vomiting, episodic balance problems... Uh, what we call abdominal migraine, where they present more with uh, abdominal um, discomfort. So abdominal um, migraine is a thing. It is. It is. And the and, and of course they they don't sometimes don't like light and don't like sounds. They want to go to bed and sh- sh- you know close the curtains. Exactly. So photophobia and phonophobia are very common accompaniments of childhood migraine. Is this genetic? What causes migraine? We don't really know, uh, and that's one of the the problems. But there's a very strong genetic component to it. Having said that, trauma will often precipitate headache in people with a predisposition to migraine. You mean physical trauma? Yeah, trauma to the head, even very minor blows can set off a a severe headache in children with a a migraine predisposition, which is kind of interesting. We don't really understand it, but it's something to do with the pain pathways in the brain arising from the brainstem and then spreading abnormally throughout the brain. Although it's not consistent, some adults find that certain foods like oranges or Chocolate can precipitate um, migraine, the same in children? To some extent. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion about certain biogenic amines in the diet and things which people feel in some instances do precipitate diet, but in most cases there's no clear association that we can identify. So you've got a child who's having headaches. Now, my understanding of the evidence in adults is that migraine is underdiagnosed. Is it, presumably, if it's underdiagnosed in adults, when it's pretty clear, really, it's underdiagnosed in children. Very definitely, especially in very younger children who can't, uh, in, in whom you can't elucidate that clinical, the classical history of, of headache and vomiting. Well, let's d- divide the treatment into two, because one is if you've got a child who's getting a lot of migraine, you want to try and prevent it. We'll put that to one side, because the placebo effect that we talked about was largely in preventive treatments. What about the acute attack? In adults, you're told, well, you know, the first sign that's coming on, because people generally recognise when it's coming on, they're feeling a bit sick or lights bothering their eyes, or they're just beginning to get a throbbing headache, jump in really hard with paracetamol or ibuprofen or something like that. Is it the same in children? Exactly the same. So about a third of children will have an aura with some premonitory symptoms of some sort, and that's a great opportunity to get in there with fluid and with uh, simple analgesics like paracetamol or ibuprofen. Uh, but once the headache's really got, it, got its uh, claws into the kids, often those medications are less useful. Often the children will vomit, and so they'll fail to tolerate those medications, in which case supportive care, quiet, quiet environment, turn off the lights, leave them, get them to sleep if you can, 
is, but, is often the best therapy. But giving them an injection for nausea or vomiting doesn't help very much according to the guidelines from the United States. The tryptan medications that we sometimes use uh, for nausea and vomiting, they don't, they don't so much help with the nausea and vomiting, but they can help with the associated symptoms of migraine, things like photophobia and phonophobia. Some children will benefit from uh, medications that we use specifically for nausea and vomiting, like on Dancitron, which weren't looked at in this study. Um, but uh, yeah, essentially, simple analgesics like ibuprofen or paracetamol and fluid at the onset of the headache are the most effective treatment. And presumably sleep, lack of sleep, uh, dehydration, not taking regular meals, those are also precipitating factors in children as well as adults. Very much so. And any febrile illness in a child can set off a headache in someone with that predisposition. So from what we've just discussed, there's obviously lifestyle things that you can do to prevent it, although it can be hard as the child gets older and into adolescence. What about medications to prevent? Because there are various ones used in adults, like beta blockers, for example, propranolol and others. Do they work in childhood? They do work. To some extent, we have to use them off-label for those indications because the, the, the well-designed trials haven't been done. Yes, they do work. Some of the anticonvulsant medications that we use do work, but we often just start, especially in small children, with antihistamines, which, again, haven't been subjected to good rigorous trials, but we've seen for many years with clinical experience that they are effective for migraine prophylaxis so or you're prevention. So kind of ignore, ignoring the placebo study results from the US I think study. the studies just haven't been done yet, and they haven't been done properly. What's the likelihood that it's going to go on into adulthood? Children and well, prepubertally, boys and girls are equally affected by a migraine headache, but postpubertally, most boys will grow out of it, and unfortunately, it's the girls who tend to get stuck with it into adulthood, and that will be a third of or to a half of uh, paediatric migraine victims. So, if you take all adults who've got migraine, and it's a lot of them, what proportion started in childhood? Do we know? Oh, it would be a very reasonable proportion, I'd say a, a third to a half. Now, one of the scary things, particularly in women who get aura, which is you know, this, this, the neurological signs that you're heading for an attack, there is later in life a higher incidence of stroke. Is that true in childhood as well? At the risk of stroke in childhood in association with a migraine, it's not zero, but it's very, very low. It's less than 1%. Are there other conditions that go along with it? Well, with migraine, as I said, in the very small children, we sometimes say other paroxysmal sorts of syndromes, which include torticollis, par uh, paroxysmal so vertigo. So torticollis being sore neck where your head's twisted to one side. With yeah, and we can see that in infancy as a migraine equivalent. Oh, really? Abdominal migraine, cyclone that. vomiting, paroxysmal vertigo. They're all migraine equivalents in small children. So a lot for the GP to look at and uh, parents to think about when the child is getting odd symptoms. That's right. And your general advice for parents is what? Not to panic, just to give the kids some time and space, turn the lights off, put them in a dark room, uh, give them lots of fluid and, and give them a chance to recover. Having said that, if children have their first episode of migraine and that's associated with focal neurological symptoms, there is always a risk that, in fact, it's not a migraine, it's a stroke, and those children should be seen in an emergency department as a matter of urgency. So for the first time, just making sure it's checked out. That's Mon right. Monique, thanks for joining us. It's been fascinating. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Professor Monique Ryan is Head of Paediatric Neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. There's a growing number of women like Monique in leadership positions in Australian medicine and healthcare, but according to an editorial in the Medical Journal of Australia, the glass ceiling is yet to be broken which is ironic since male domination of medical student numbers disappeared long ago. So you have probably a majority of medical graduates being women, 
Yet the bosses are mostly men, which presumably creates distortions in training, quality and service to us as consumers. I remember a story where I was doing some focus group work with people with chronic illness and talking to them about their GPs and they said they didn't have any problems with their GPs because she looks after us really well. In other words, their search was always for a female to get the care they wanted. The author of this editorial is a medical leader and has been one for many years, Professor Helena Teed, who's Executive Director of Monash Partners Academic Health Sciences Centre in Melbourne and an endocrinologist at Monash Health. And with Helena is Elizabeth Sixton, who's a consultant consultant ear, nose and throat surgeon, also at Monash Health. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Helena, what are the stats? So you're absolutely right, Norman. We know that uh, in medical school, it was really a couple of decades ago now that we had an equivalent or if not um, higher proportion of the students coming through who were actually women. And for a long time, the argument was, well, we'll wait in the pipeline and as those women uh, get older and naturally evolve into more leadership positions, we'll see that change. And that hasn't happened. In fact, the Lancet described it as a leaky pipeline. So we've still got a, a real preponderance of anywhere from 3% of our surgeons in some fields are, are women. And in leadership roles, it's around 10 to 12% in our senior leadership roles in some areas that are women. What are the causes of the leaks? Oh, there are many causes, well, I mean, but actually... A leak, a leak yeah. sounds benign rather than a barrier, yeah. but then you, we'll come back to that in a moment. Yes, true. Uh, so in essence, we now know what causes it. And there's been some really good research in Australia that's shown that it's actually rarely now people thinking that women don't deserve or aren't interested or shouldn't be able to participate in leadership in a whole range of areas. It really comes down out of three So there's things. fewer male farts around. Well... Um, My word, you, not yours. You, yes, your <laughs> words. That's a good way of putting it. So now it's really three things. It's the, the capability that women have to participate in these sorts of leadership roles, and that's primarily... Perceived capability uh, or real capability? Exactly. It's perceived capability. A lot of it is about confidence. So we know that to get women to apply for a job, they need to tick all 10 criteria often before they'll even apply. Our male colleagues will generally do that when they tick four or five out of 10 criteria. Thinking, oh, um, I can do this, no problem. Yes. And women will often require a mentor to encourage them or tap them on the shoulder rather than putting themselves forward for awards, positions, etc. So there is a, a perceived confidence, a perceived concern about capability, and that's that's also a way that, about the way we promote people within our workplace. It's just different for many women than perhaps it is for our male colleagues. Women don't go and network on the golf course for their next position. Um, the, the, whereas, and what's, yeah. So what's the impact here? I mean, are we, are, are, is, is healthcare the less for this? Yes, so we do know that in all areas, whether it's health or anywhere, that equity and diversity, one is more reflective of our community and therefore make sure that healthcare has a voice around that. But also we know that a more diverse, heterogeneous group is much more likely to reflect the needs of the community and much more likely to address the health service and healthcare needs across the spectrum. Elizabeth Sixton, you were the first mother to be taken in to, into an advanced surgical training program. In other words, you, had, you already had kids and you were about to go into um, subspecialty training in ear, nose and throat surgery. Uh, that's right, Norman. In fact, it was I went into general surgery first. I had my daughter when I was a third year resident and was accepted into general surgery uh, just after she was born. 
So just describe, I mean, obviously you'd like to become a leader. And I think from what I, little I know of you, you, you actually are recognised by your colleagues these days as a, as a leader in ENT surgery and a, push, and a mover and shaker. But just, descri- you, just describe your journey there and, and what you've discovered. Because I think that what you've discovered is that the more you get into it, the more attitudes and barriers you're finding. I think you're exactly right. When I was more junior, and certainly when I was applying at the time, I did have uh, a number of surgeons sort of point out that you know, when they went through to be male and married was considered a barrier to becoming a surgeon. And here I was, I was female, I was married and I had a baby. And the question was, do you really think you're going to be a surgeon? And I hadn't thought that that was not possible. I was lucky I was in an environment where I was well supported and was able to proceed with that. But that's, that's, I, that's getting your ticket as an ear, nose and throat surgeon. What about becoming a leader and actually you know, taking people forward to a place that they haven't been before? That's definitely challenging. I spent a a number of years as executive director of our unit and worked very closely with our head of unit to help build our unit at Monash into one of the most efficient units that we have. And I think we've moved uh, to where women are accepted into being, I guess, if you'd like to say, seen as the supporter role. Uh, You know, we we do things and uh, I think we're very welcome in that area. When we wish so to start. So they're throwing stuff over the fence to you rather than giving you the leadership? Yeah, I think so. Well, here's the problem. Find a solution. You know, and, and we're very good at that. I, I think where, we're, where I've noticed the, the uh, barriers is when you actually want to start changing the structure of things and changing the way people perceive leadership. So, for example, leadership in a hierarchical system is very much attached to the position. But just because you have the position doesn't mean that you're a leader. And that's a big shift in thinking uh, for, and, you know, particularly in surgery where that's the traditional model, uh, for us to build better in a, um, I guess, a more collaborative healthcare system, we need to start engaging everybody in a role of leadership. And Helena, I mean, that's one of the things that probably women bring more than men is the notion of team building as a leader. Yes, so uh, we have to be a little bit careful here because they're, they're often the stereotypes, but the masculine style of, or traditionally masculine style of leadership, which is not the way all males wish to behave, but is much more command, control, top down. Um, and that includes the way we treat our patients, whereas the traditionally feminine style of leadership is distributive, collective, uh, much more about engaging and supporting each other and also our patients. So there is that that stereotype, but yes, women have a preference for that more distributive leadership type of style, and they therefore tend to be more transformative. So a balance would be to have a, a diverse leadership group that really reflected the equity and diversity of our society. Elizabeth, how, how have you had to change your behaviour in order to become a leader? Uh, that's a very good question, Norman. I think when I've started, I think the, the models that we have are very much, as Helena said, is, is the command and control. And there's certainly situations, particularly in surgery, where you need that. Uh, if I have someone who's got an airway that's in danger, I will be telling people what to do, how to do it and when to do it. But we need to also spend as much time in investing in skills in leadership as we do in our surgical skills. And that's quite a different skill. And what we've done is taken some of that surgical model and applied it to leadership, and maybe it doesn't really work. But people have got to start listening. 
And and I think part of the reason uh, when we talk about having that ability to switch between different styles of leadership, that's not just for women, that's for men as well. And by having more women in leadership positions, we potentially are providing an alternative role model that other men can also model themselves on and see that there are different ways to the ones that have been traditionally on view. Helena, influential of the health report is an interview won't necessarily change things. What are the solutions here? So now that we know that a lot of it's about the capability, also the capacity of women, the critical issue around parenting. So we know that women work the same hours in medicine as men until the age of usually onset of um, first children. They drop down for about five years as a critical career stage and then have much less opportunity after that. And the other issue, Norman, is credibility that we don't see women as our GPs or cardiologists, etc. But the answer is... Well, they do increasingly... Increasingly, yes, you're right. Um, so the answer really is about taking much more of a systems level approach. So the evidence now starts to show us that you can help the individual and leadership training and capacity building is, is very powerful, as is mentoring and having um, organisational changes around this as well. So that capacity building, leadership and mentoring and role modelling. But, but often in this situation, it's women who think, who realise they need the training and not men. So you find women queuing up for these training schemes and men not. Yes, perhaps we should take our male colleagues with us. You're absolutely right. But I think all of us, as Liz suggested, just because you're a doctor and you happen to have been you know, reasonably bright and work incredibly hard and have technical skills does not mean you have leadership skills. And we need to think about that much more broadly and build on that leadership. So there's now a national initiative, Norman, across the colleges, across the health services, across government, where people are coming together and saying, we really need to do something about this and we need to do it at a systems level and we need to change so that people don't have to fight to get what they really should be able to have the opportunities to have. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Helena Teed and Elizabeth Sixon, thanks very much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks Thanks very much. Helena Teed is Executive Director of Monash Partners Academic Health Research Translation Centre. She's also an endocrinologist at Monash Health. And Elizabeth Sixton is a head and neck cancer surgeon and ENT surgeon also at Monash Health. I'm Norman Swan. You've been listening to The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.